Welcome to Talking in Stations, a podcast about EVE Online, recorded live on Twitch, Saturdays, 1500 Universal Time. I am Matterall from NC. Destructive Influence Corp. The Alliance tournament season is almost here, and T3s are being changed just in time. So we're going to have a look at both those topics and more uh, on today's show. First, let's get some introductions out of the way. How are you doing, Apotheny? Dude, it is AT season is officially here, and my level of hype, man. The hype! The hype! <laughs> you have enough for both of us, because I just put a smile on my face. Uh, welcome back, Carneros. How are you doing? Good morning. Great. Thank you. Good to be here. You guys are actually in the Alliance tournament, right, Bastion? We, uh, we're going to be in for our first time. We're, uh, we're virgins, as we say. Awesome. So to get in deep on the Alliance tournament, we've called some players that would know it better than anybody else, starting with Elise Randolph. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Uh, glad to be here. I'm, I'm quite excited, uh, not only for the Alliance tournament season, but also for the uh, T3 rebalance. That's going to be uh, an interesting can of worms. Yeah, we'll hit that topic first. Also from PL is their co-captain to their team, Lucas Kwan. Hello, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks. Uh, and finally, rounding out the Alliance Tournament team uh, panel here at TIS is uh, Moderator from the Tuskers. How are you? Uh, doing well. Uh, probably best known for being a commentator in Alliance Tournament 14 and also a member of the current Strategic Cruiser uh, focus group. Nice. Right. That's great. So you're, you're uh, uh, what was I going to say? They're doubly valuable today. Is that a word? No, I just made it a word. I voted in. All right, let's get started with the show. Um, first thing we want to tackle is the uh, Tech 3 changes that are coming. And uh, I can frame them up very generally, but I'm sure you guys can go a lot deeper. Um, T3 is the um, Tech 3 cruisers that were introduced with Apocrypha. And they came out of uh, ingredients that you could find in Wormhole Space, which was also introduced in that same expansion. Uh, and since then, they were uh, very expensive and um, uh, the loot was limited. And so they uh, were supposed to be something that you could configure in many different ways, I think 15 or more different ways. Uh, and CCP has looked at it and uh, decided they need to, shall we say, nerf or fix them because there's too many options. So some concept, of that changed. The concept was that it integrates so tightly in with you, with the pilot, that if you lose the ship, if it blows up while you're flying it, that you lose a little piece of yourself with it due to the integration. And that was pretty cool. You would actually lose skill points. The thing of it was they uh, became super powerful as they became like very affordable. And so you see them all over the place and they kind of overshadow a lot of other ships in different areas. So they kind of were seen as uh, something that needed to be dialed back and stuff. But let's talk about T3s. Uh, who wants to actually talk about what the changes are? Well, we don't know the specifics of what the changes are yet, other than some br very broad generalizations, which are themselves subject to change, that they're moving the subsystems from being a set of five types of subsystem with, I think it's currently four or five individual subsystems within that category, down to four categories of subsystem, each with three inside them, reducing the total number of subsystems we have to deal with, combining some roles together, and also meaning, hopefully, that every subsystem is a valid choice. Yeah. 
Well, uh, also the um, the rigs are going to be able to come on and off. Is that right? That's correct. This yes. is true. Yeah. And another change is going to be uh, that skill points that were for a certain branch that you had to earn for a certain branch will be reimbursed. That's uh, kind of the latest on that. They haven't actually specified as of yet which branch, I believe, but it's most likely going to be either the electronic or the engineering subsystem, and they'll be combined into one subsystem. Mm. So pilots who have trained all that up can look forward to some skill points given back to them, probably in a generic form that they can put wherever they want, uh, probably, but we don't know. And the last thing that was kind of important that I was reading about was the, the death penalty, the I don't want to put it that way, but the penalty for dying in the ship won't lose you skill, will still lose you skill points, right? Yeah, and I think that's a really important mechanic for these uh, strategic cruisers. I know a lot of the um, like times now, like people don't really care, but or rather, it seems like people don't care. But I mean, if you're in an alliance that loses tech threes regularly, and you haven't been, you're not like eight year old characters or six year old characters plus. You do actually feel that pain when you lose a strategic cruiser. So I do like the, you know, the ship is powerful, but you have a huge drawback that is not is directly tied to ISK, even though I guess now it is because you can just buy a, an ejector to get, yeah. get out of it. I, but it you becomes know, they, like even more expensive to, to fly. And it, I like just keeping that cost pretty high. I always thought that was the end game. Um, I forget what other game was like this. Maybe Carneros knows since he works in the game industry. But the... Um, the fact that you lose skill points creates like a never ending place to invest your skill point training time. Uh, like it's constantly knocking you down. So you're constantly retraining it back up. And I always thought that was like, oh, they'll do more skills like that. Cause that's kind of end game. I remember um, uh, in, in a war a few years ago uh, between uh, the HBC, which was a group with basically composed of, composed of test. We're fighting AAA and we kept killing their FC over and over and over again. We calculated that he never, ever gained skill points for an entire, like, eight months because we kept killing his strategic <laughs> cruiser. And we kind of, like, poked fun at him every time we saw him with locals. Like, oh, you've never, you've, your skill points haven't gone up. And back then, I mean, it felt like a, a big accomplishment for a lot of, especially younger, newer players who were predominantly in test. Because they were like, oh, man, this guy never got to train anything. Oh, this feels so good. <laughs> May I ask where exactly that pilot ended up? Uh, I mean, he ended up in my corp, but he is now in, in NC Dot. It's uh, Makalu Zaraya. Oh, Makalu, yeah. He's an FC now for uh, NC. Uh, he's also from AAA fame and uh, has been an FC for a long time. Yeah, he's uh he actually rose the ranks. I mean, we're, this is too much, but he rose the ranks through CVA and became like a super FC that way, which is pretty cool the the way that worked. Yeah, it was kind of the old uh, training ground for a lot of FCs. I think Pro God Legend came out of there. Am I mistaken in thinking Shadu came out of Providence? Um, the Providence area, but he wasn't part of uh Provi Block type uh type alliances. Oh yeah, I'm not even sure Pro God was either, in but that's an area. And Jintan is out of there too, but also Core Blood Brothers with a CSM member. He's definitely part of, uh, he was their head FC for a while, I believe. But anyway, so what were the T3s used for previously? And, and how is that going to change? I mean, the oh, biggest well, change already happened with the link changes, to be honest, that you have to be on grid. So when you say previously, what kind of time frame are we talking about? Are we talking about what they're being used for currently or what they were used for initially on release in Apocrypha? 
Well, that's really interesting, Apocrypha, but um, let's just say the last year, or actually, no, let's talk about Apocrypha when they were first released, just to give people a little history. Like, what were their main usage then? I mean, when they... Oh, you can go moderating. Yeah, primarily at the time, they were used mostly by wormhole groups who were actually refining and um, getting the gases and the other um, materials that you needed. Uh, these were not really super farm sites. It's, again, with Apocrypha, the entire ecosystem for the materials and everything that you needed to produce them actually was just being developed. So primarily it was only wormholers and later richer kind of more, um, I guess, elite PVP groups, kind of like the Rooks and Kings of that era started using them. And it small wasn't, gangs, right? yeah, small groups like that. And it wasn't until much later where you started to see groups um, in Nullsack or larger Loksack entities really take a hold of them. At least, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the wormholers were definitely the first guys to use it, and and they were so weird, you know, just like wormholers are now. Uh, their their doctrines <laughs> made no sense to me. Like, I, I would kind of just be a fly on the wall during some of the the wormhole fights back when wormhole fights would be like fifty on fifty and sixty on sixty, and they just escalate uh, beyond using a bunch of caps and stuff. They'd bring like a handful, maybe. But they'd have like ham legions, and everyone would have a point and a web themselves, and they wouldn't really have an anchor. They'd just like zoom in one general direction toward the bad guys. And like Balgorns were like the best of the best, uh, and they would be like there, but they were like, oh, we've got these ham legions, who cares? They they don't get capped out. And, it was really yeah. wild. And everyone used to fit micro warp drives on them. Yeah, like everyone just did their own thing. It was, it, and this wasn't like when Eve was like uh, in like the era where people just hit each other with sticks and stuff. This was pretty modern Eve for warfare. And every time I'd watch these uh, wormhole fights, and even when I was on the CSM with a wormhole guy two-step, I used to like dig at him and be like, what are you guys doing? This makes no sense. <laughs> well, um, it was like, wormholes. Yeah, exactly. But, but then, um, uh, as moderator mentioned, some of the, uh, the groups on, you know, in case space started adapting to these uh, Tech 3 cruisers. I remember PL, it was really, I was a real, real tough sell to get PL to fly uh, Tengus at the time. And uh, we even gave them a pretty great name. called We called them Thundercats uh, after the uh, <laughs> the children's TV show from like the late 80s, early 90s. And that was like, ugh, that was a big thing. It was actually done by Seamus Orzaz, which was uh, the, the, like the founder of PL, one of the very first theory crafters PL ever had, and uh, he was like, "Guys, this is this is definitely in the future." And everyone was like, "Oh no! If we die, we lose skill points. It's gonna take like we'll never get out of this." Uh, and then we flew them once, and we're like, "Holy shit! These people have no idea how to fight this. This is like an a hack on crack. These are the best things ever." Um, and then that quarter sort of, sort of like uh, just grew and grew and grew. Other people borrowed that idea and made it better. And then the idea of taking Proteuses came out, and then just Proteuses and Legions and Lokis, and just swept Eve. And now it's one of the, the main doctrines for essentially every NullSec alliance, is everyone has some sort of uh, strategic cruiser fleet. And so wh why are they so good? Like, what, what makes them so good? Uh, so what makes them pretty good, and I'm sure Apothean Moderator can kind of uh, tag in on this, is uh, they do a whole lot of everything. They have a whole bunch of utility. They're very, very tanky, and they've got a huge engagement envelope, uh, so they can shoot pretty far. And that's uh, the meta that's been really popular in EVE for the last three or four years, is being able to shoot 
or have a pretty good engagement envelope. So I can be very effective up close, but I can still be a, a effective at like 100 kilometers if you try and kite me. Um, so I don't have to perch that much. Uh, I don't have to reposition myself on the battlefield. Once I'm there, I can stay there and just cause a lot of damage to anyone that comes uh, into my little ball of own zone here. Let me uh, back you up just a little bit it's for people that are new to the game or, or new to military terms. What is a battle envelope or the uh, that you're talking about? What's that mean? Uh, so it's essentially just like the the distance that you can apply your damage effectively, right? So uh, AHACs back in the day, you would be able to be very effective within 10 kilometers or maybe 20 kilometers of your of like where your uh, the center point of your fleet was, and you want to keep your center point pretty close so the the logistics and repairs can like hit everyone equally. Uh, strategic cruisers they take that to an extreme, you know, they take it from it's not zero to 20 kilometers, it's zero to 80 or zero to 120 if you can fit that much. And you also have a bunch of utility in the form of mid slots. So you can have tackle, you can have tracking disruption, you can have sensor dams. So you can do a lot of things at once. You know, you're not just taking uh, a rock to a rock, paper, scissors showdown. You're taking rock and a little bit of scissors with you, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyone so else there, they're Go just ahead. super versatile, and, and they just became really good at doing everything at once. So instead of having to specialize, you can just take the whole house with you. Yeah. And then in addition to what he's describing for the main fleet, you could specialize one or two of them to be uh, your fleet commander's more strategic platform. It would be tankier, so it could be primaried and still survive. And it would have uh, the ability to very quickly apply some damage when at a time when you're uh, when you're trying to call targets and quickly get people shooting the right thing. And then in addition, you'd have a few of them set up as boosters, uh, and they were very helpful for that. Something that today, at least in my experience in NullSec, we almost never use Tech 3 cruiser boosters anymore. Mm -hmm. What does anybody? Uh... Yeah, well, well, I mean, part of the range thing that Lise was talking about was not so much the strategic cruisers themselves, but rather the rebalance of medium-long-range weapons. Because in the beginning, when we started using legions and produces for armor hacks, they were still blaster and pulse fit, but medium rails and beams became really, really overpowered, which, of course, synergized well with the bonuses that you got from the, both the produce and the legion. So, because originally, it was really only the heavy missile Tengu that was good, uh, the T3s, when we, when, at least when Peel started using them with Thundercats. It's, it's kind of weird how we have short-range weapon systems and long-range weapon systems, and they do functionally about the same amount of DPS when you're using them correctly. Like You do uh, more with rails than you do with blasters, to be honest. Yeah, like so it's kind of weird that you have the um, short-range weapon system, which is supposed to be the high damage, high tracking, but very short range, and you have a long-range weapon system, which obviously does have work worse tracking, but you know, at range, your tracking inherently approves the further you are away from something for the same speed and what have you. Um, so really, like, kind of like we're in a modern state of Eve where short range weapons don't have a place in fleet combat because long range weapons are just as good, only have extra range, functionally speaking. In the modern era of Eve, the primary use of Tech 3s as an actual fleet doctrine in and of itself and not just as a support ship is transiting your fleet through a wormhole. Uh, you can't really move uh, battleships through a wormhole to project. I mean, if I'm uh, in low sec, right, and I'm going to a timer or some sort of objective that's close range to me, 
or Nilsec even. I'm probably going to take some combination of either Nightmares, Rattlesnakes, or Macarials in no particular order over Tech 3s. I'll have some Tech 3s on hand to augment my fleet. For example, if I'm running Armor Macarials, I want to comp Webbing Lokis and some Proteuses to get some uh, utility tackle and webs into that fleet. But by and large, faction battleships is more or less the line ship if you can actually get them there in a reasonable time frame. Yeah. So I guess right now it's a faction battleship since they're so cheap uh, or T3s because you can move those through wormholes to remote areas to get yourself into a theater of action that you couldn't get to by jumping 46 jumps, for instance. Um, so these so these are the ways that the, the... It also has a great tank, I think that was brought up too, right? Like So you can survive the wave of damage that hits uh, upon an alpha strike or a volley. Yeah, as, as fleets got as fleets got larger in size, a hacks became or, you know like traditional hacks became uh, very hard to to keep alive, because they were just you know they had a fixed amount of HP and you know as fleets get bigger, even if you don't have alpha per se, that initial shock of damage was just kill through straight through um, a heavy assault cruiser. But these uh, strategic cruisers, not only with the, their extra utility and stuff that we've all mentioned, they're also innately tankier as well. You can you can fit uh, a plate, you know, and and still have everything, and they still have three rig slots instead of two compared to the uh, hacks, and so they just become they can just stay on the field a little bit longer, and this synergizes really well with how fleets grew in size. So back in the day. Um, a uh, hundred and fifty man fleet, you know, hacks could could deal with, and then when you get to two hundred and fifty, it's you hit an impasse. Now with strategic cruisers, you can have two hundred and fifty to even four hundred sometimes, and survive and, and catch reps if uh, if you're facing the right the right opponent. Yeah. So this is the way that they uh, were used in the. Uh... In the past, going all the way back to when they started, which was interesting because they were kind of a niche for wormholers uh, because they actually, the ingredients came out of wormholes. So they constructed these weird, uh, you know, ships that didn't look like any other ship. Uh, and then that's evolved to like, hey, we can afford to use these and they're very effective. And then now it's one of the standard things that people use and it kind of overshadows hacks or armor hacks or uh, hacks or heavy assault cruisers basically that mid-level strong uh, and fast um, you know uh, damage platform or damaging ship um, or gunship and one of the things that's funny is that people I think PL and maybe NC that I know of call it uh, call the T3 cruiser a hack fleet and I, I was wondering if there was like a meta to that like it's telling CCP that uh, this is actually a true A-hack because the other A-hacks uh, don't measure up right now. I mean, um, I don't think we actually had that real <laughs> that <laughs> ulterior motive when we named it. It was just kind of easier to say. I remember uh, a few years ago when we were, were doing it, we, we just ended up calling it A-hack 2.0 because it just seemed better. Um, and then we you know, changed oh. the fits a little bit and it just went A-hack 3.0, A-hack 3.1, and so on. So we just call them A-hacks. It's just easier to, to say. Yeah, it's funny. It, it seemed to like uh, it is. So it was a hack 2.0. So that it is like just the language alone. What people call this ship kind of tells you what it's eclipsing. Uh, even though it's a different type of ship, it eclipses a whole branch of ships, which I thought was interesting. So these changes, how are they going to affect? 
how this thing works? And is this a nerf or, you know, what are we looking at here? They've said rather explicitly that one of their design goals is to increase the signature and make them um, less mobile. So I, I think the goal is to not nerf their ability outside of fleet combat. So there's still reasonable exploration ships. You can still travel in them. You can still do a wide range of things. But they are trying to reduce their strength as a ship of the line core DPS ship. Yeah, you know, you know, go ahead. I was saying I got into a little bit of a, a conversation with uh, someone on uh, the Eve subreddit talking about what you know what would be your dream scenario for the the Tech Three rebalance. And you know one of the things I came up with or came out of that conversation with is I'd love to see a lot of the utility removed from the tech three cruisers you know like if you could say oh, just this is the one thing you get to do i'd be like oh re remove some utility uh you know maybe dial down their power a little bit and give a lot of that utility over to the hacks so when i go out in a fleet of let's say 100 i don't want to take uh 100 proteuses with me i'd maybe depending on who i'm fighting maybe i'd want to take 70 proteuses and uh 30 ishtars or 30 zealots with me or you know something like that or maybe if i want to have a lot of utility i'd go really heavy on the hacks i'd bring uh 50 zealots with me and and maybe only 45 or 50 legions i think that'd be a really cool uh, uh ebb and flow to, to fleet combat i don't know if that's the direction they're going but that that would be kind of like my dream scenario now when you say this the sig uh is going to get bigger um what does that mean for for um the t3's abilities it means that they'll be easier to track and apply damage to. And I mean, already that's something that for the most part um, is everyone in the this day and era really tends to comp enough webs and target paints that actually signature tanking battleships at zero isn't really a thing that exists anymore. If you try to do that in a fleet of um, Proteus's or Legions, you're going to get hazed pretty quickly. Hmm. So it's not that's that may not have a big impact, but it the, also makes uh, them easier to scan down. So it's going to be harder to do things like peats. It also means that they'll get locked quicker. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it probably would follow that they would also increase the mass at the same time that they increase the sig radius. And if they do that, it will be less mobile in the sense of going through wormhole chains to get to other locations. It'll mean missiles apply significantly better. Obviously, harvesting radius helps turrets, but it helps missiles a lot more. So um, I know they're simplifying this because before there were like too many options, some options that were just not used that were dead, according to Fozzie, CCP Fozzie, and uh, some options that were kind of overpowered. So it seemed like that was it was tricky to balance because you're not balancing like one ship, you're balancing five ships or 15 ships you know, all in one model, and then you multiply that, if I guess. All the different configurations you could do, it was technically over 4,000 separate ships with, um, wow. uh, you know, all the different mods. Yeah, and that's so, got to be hard to balance. Uh, it's it's got to be hard to balance that. That's like a whole chunk of uh, ships because uh, each one of those configurations is considered a ship. And uh, it's no wonder that it's kind of out of balance with some things being useful and some things uh, being not useful at all. So there looks like they're slimming that down uh, to make less choices. Um, and as kind of a, as kind of an offset, they let you take the rigs out to make it even more uh, changeable. seems like where they're going with this. 
And that seems to be uh, something that's going to be very, very sought after in wormhole space again. So maybe their their role is going to be focusing more on putting these things back into the bread and butter of wormhole space. And, you know, other guys can use them too. But, you know, look, at it's kind of like a huge shout to wormhole guys. Like, hey, look, you can change this shape without leaving your wormhole. That, that would be fantastic. And I know a lot of... Uh, at FanFest, actually, when that change was announced, I know a lot of wormhole people started cheering in the audience. Oh, which is really? one, of the, one of the fun things about uh, about going to a place like FanFest when you hear these changes. You instantly get a sense of, uh, yeah. It's like that comedian that, that says jokes and some parts of the crowd laugh, and then he says a different joke and other parts of the crowd laugh. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, that that would be interesting. So it sounds like they're going kind of putting these back to what their original purpose was for. That is what sounds like what you're saying. If we look at their, uh, I'm assuming they're still going to have a subsystem that will let them be a booster. And if we look at the booster options out there right now, uh, one of the uh, one if they if they're going to slow it down. Uh, and make it less mobile, that's going to start to put it up against command ships. And command ships are, are going to be tankier, and they're going to probably be a better option. Um, it, I don't, I'm hoping maybe that whatever subsystem is used for, uh, for boosting maybe gives it more mobility, because we need something that's in between, in between a command ship and a, and a tactical destroyer or whatever, or what do you call those? Uh, the, the tech three destroyers something uh, in between in mobility and you could take it with a what's the right thing to take with a fast cruiser fleet yeah uh i think they're called boosters or is that am i wrong on that <laughs> that's just the nickname um um moderator you had something yeah just that um the time frame of this whatever it does end up coming out it will affect the alliance tournament um, however, one thing we do know is that you are not going to be allowed to fit remote repairs onto them, so you will not be able to use these as a, a tinker comp like PL and others have done in the past. Nice I mean, segue. outside tinkers, the Tech 3 Cruiser has never been that popular because it's been pretty much at the same points of the command ships and Tech 3 Cruiser versus Command Ship in the AT is kind of like a no-brainer, given the ridiculous of how good the Slepnir is. Actually, well, one last, let, point, on, sure, one last point on that is actually, is one thing it, I really am interested in seeing how it affects is the logistics legion. Um, that's something that you see used a lot in LOSEC, especially where people are using mid- or high-grade slave sets a lot, is that it's used as a much more uh, tanky version of the Guardian, which can get killed far easier than, say, a legion. So... That's something that will definitely um, be very interesting to see how that develops. So uh, one thing we mentioned at the beginning of the show is moderator is not only a part of the uh, tournament team, but he's also on the T3. Um, what do they call that now? Work group or, you know, uh, but they, like 12 people were selected to be a part of uh, feedback for the changes that are coming. Um, what do you expect to see uh, in, in that, you know, group? I'm not trying to have any preconceived notions one way or another of what's going to come out. Um, CCP is going to give us more or less of their vision, and then we're going to give feedback on that. Yeah, I'm being corrected. Focus group. That's right. The word I couldn't find. Um, it, it seems that they're saying we have a group here that's going to give us feedback on these changes. At the same time, these changes are coming really soon. How's that 
how's it going to happen? It needs to be seen. Uh, I'm not sure how much feedback or how fast they're wanting to move on this. Obviously, it's coming out on July 11th. So mm -hmm. that's right before the Alliance tournament. Now we're going to move over to Alliance tournament. Um, well, actually, in just a second. But one thing that was brought up is the part of the tournament, the uh, rounds are going to be before the changes, and then the tournament is going to happen after the changes. So there may be doctrines that change in that time. Uh, Carneros? And going back to what you said about the, the, the strategic cruisers and tinker fits not being an option, the fact that they're allowing energy transfers this time and the and the the receiving ship could have an ancillary an unscripted ancillary repair module on it doesn't that almost work like a tinker uh, wouldn't wouldn't a local rep be viable if you had an et coming in on you is that like a well, hidden backdoor well well that's kind of the entire way that the tinker works if you look at a very traditional tinker which is kind of a undermanned comp so maybe five dudes you'll have a tengu uh maybe three uh shield battleships i don't know say two scorpion navies and uh i don't know golem say for a paint for the missiles and then you throw in some links to have like a bitch vulture as you call them so, so that's like a traditional tinker comp each of the ships that were not the tinker tengu would be feeding cap to the tengu the Tengu would rare, would probably not have any cap modules on it, and the way it would keep the team alive, it would have it would have remote reps in the highs, which in this ATR are banned. But the way it would tank itself would be to have that local rep, an extra large, probably not an ancillary, just a regular extra large rep, and that would just cycle super quick. And those things could tank up to like I don't know what was it like 4k DPS around there. Uh, Lucas, you probably know that better than me. Yeah, a bit more, I'd say 5k. With heat, obviously, then, yeah. Yeah. Why not? Uh, okay, so we're making that transition to Alliance Tournament. Uh, this is uh, really an interesting, <clears throat> it's an interesting time for Alliance Tournament. It seems to have like a whole new wave of energy. Um, let's, let's look back for a second on the Alliance Tournament before we get too far into uh, the, uh, the strategies and what's in the rules and stuff like that. Let's talk about like, the Alliance tournament, what it is, what it what it's meant to Eve Online, and what benefits it has for people who win it. What's the incentives there? Somebody want to take that? I'm thinking, yeah, uh, Elise. Uh, yeah. I'm happy to do this because it's one of the the things that I got interested in when I first started playing Eve back in the day, and I just kind of stuck with it as a huge part of me afterwards. Um, so the Alliance tournament, which is kind of like a when it first came out, it was kind of like a goof. You know, it's like, uh, hey guys, we're just gonna hold the tournament to see who is the best. I mean, that's that's it's one like of the Kaldari most. Kaldari one, right? Uh, it was the Kaldari remember. Championships before it yeah. was the Alliance. Eighty one. Yeah. There you go. Uh, the super super cool information about that, and and <laughs> like the the prizes were, uh, you'd get like four super cool battleships, you know, and they'd be completely unique and and uh, just amazing to have, and. In the very early days, there was like a, a pretty big dynasty uh, from Band of Brothers, and you know there's there's a very storied history of the Jericho Fraction countering like this this crazy uh, this crazy comp that was, was deemed un unbeatable. Sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was like an unbeatable comp and blah blah, blah a whole of stuff, and they just beat it with by taking ten thoraxes, you know, and uh, Hun reloaded or. The Huns, you know, follow suit in that, and that's one of their their alliance logo is just a thorax. 
Um, so it was, it was pretty cool. It was just bragging rights for the first few years. They refined it a little bit. And then I guess modern tournament era starts around Alliance Hornet 6, so the sixth inc uh, incarnation of it. And that's when you'd be getting, you know, 50 cruisers and 50 frigates, uh, depending on how you win. And since Alliance Tournament 12, they refined the rewards even more. So if you finish up to like sixth, you still get some of these fancy ships. And when you win, you get anywhere between five and seven trillion ISK. So it's a massive, massive payday for a lot of alliances. This is why groups like PL devote so many resources to this, uh, not only because it's a uh, really fun competition, but because it's a huge, huge payday potentially if you win. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I could think of more valuable to EVE players would be breeding rights or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, but the um, uh, going back to the, uh, it was mentioned here, I just want to clarify uh, for people who don't know, the first Alliance tournament was kind of, they stepped into it without knowing what they were doing. They were creating an in-game uh, Kaldari Gaming Commission, and it was kind of a role-play thing to do player events, and that turned into this first tournament. It only had three ships, one battleship, one cruiser, and one frigate, and those were the size of the teams at the time, and there was none of these uh, rules. There were, I don't think there were many rules, um, and it was a very, the very first one, and there is video out there, is a very dramatic uh, hero tanking by the cruiser of Band of Brothers, uh, and Band of Brothers at the time was a rising power or was already powerful so they were known in the game uh, as like the guys to beat in the game but also the guys to beat in the tournament and their dynasty lasted like three or three uh tournaments um before it was disrupted and then pl was really coming in this is very interesting but lost right before the finals to meet bob because that would look like it was going to be uh, the matchup, PL was going to take over from Bob uh, if PL could win. But PL lost, uh, I think, just before they got into that. Or ex the other way around, um, Bob lost um, to Star Fraction in spectacular fashion, which is kind of funny because these T1 ships beat these, you know, this unbeatable thing that Bob had put together, which kind of reminds me of Blood Raiders, <laughs> come to think of it. Yeah, the, the cool thing about the, the whole Bob unbeatable setup is that the brainchild behind that, his name was TWD, and he's actually like a chess grandmaster in real life. So he is uh, an incredible mind uh, that sadly Eve like doesn't have anymore to, to utilize. But uh, it just seems <laughs> just the fact that a chess grandmaster can have his unbeatable strat beat by ten Tech One cruisers <laughs> is so is so great. That's such quintessential Eve storybooks right there. Yeah, and uh, Lucas was just telling me that PL lost to Hun in the Alliance uh, Tournament 4. And I think Hun won it that, that year, the didn't final. they? That was the final match. Okay, so that was the final. So PL did make it to the finals. Bob was the one that got knocked out. But Hun Reloaded won that one. Um, and then pretty much after that, uh, I think then Evoke might have won the next one. But then PL's dynasty started, right? PL are the only yeah. team other than Band of Brothers to have won more than one Alliance tournament. And I think we've won five or six at this point? Five. Five, wow. Six by the in way. a few months, right, boys? <laughs> um, by the way, that was Hun, not Hun Reloaded. Uh, so my bad. It was the first version. And it's funny, you should know, in EVE, when uh, a team comes back or a group comes back, they'll either put a dot on it to say, you know, same people, but uh, the dot kind of designates the new version, or they're reloaded, like Hydra reloaded or Hun reloaded or that sort of thing. So that's where that comes from. So the original Hun won that. Um, 
that my favorite alliance tournament was AT6, um, and that was because you had this Cinderella team known as RUR uh, coming in and really uh, upsetting a lot of uh, people on their way into the finals where they met PL. But they RUR win. was Hun, wasn't it? It was just that they had a separate alliance name, or was it Roman? Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure it was Hun. Uh, Romanians. Uh, so are Hun Romanians? Or I think Hun, uh, somebody's Hungarians. Hungarians. So yeah. Romanians, yeah. Yeah, the Romanians, yeah. I, I think they were. I you may be right, but uh, they, they definitely were somebody it's, else. It's uh, it's uh, it's either Hun Reloaded or the Ronin or some. I think else. they were Ronin actually. Oh yeah, because so yeah, another amazing tournament team. And that was a great. Uh, I think Elise probably watched that one too, or was in it. <laughs> I watched. Elise was in it. Yeah. Um, that was a great tournament. It definitely was. And, you know, the, the thing about the Alliance Tournament in EVE, it's super niche. You know, it, it doesn't draw in any, like, huge crowds of people from outside the game. It's essentially just fan service. But we're talking about uh, an Alliance Tournament that was nine years ago. And the, the groups that we're talking about, they still play EVE largely for the Alliance Tournament. Like, the Ronin... Uh, they still play Eve, uh, like, you know, have some fun and stuff, but they all get back together around this time of the year to play the Alliance tournament like they have for the last, like, 14 years. And they're still super competitive. They always they always feel like they finished in the top eight regardless of the year, regardless of how often they played that year or anything like that. They just come back for the Alliance tournament, and, you know, they just it's, that, it's their niche. It's what they do. And there are some teams that only... Or they actually formed to play the Alliance tournament. I remember uh, Dead Terrorists, I think, were pretty much a tournament group before they were really much of a low-sec uh, entity. Uh, yeah, I'm exactly. Sure, I'm sure there are other groups like that, too. So it's a big deal to certain players who feel uh, competitive. Uh, like Moderator, you were on uh, Tuskers. Let's bring you in here for a second. Uh, Tuskers won last year. Um, and, you, and you also have friends who play other games in a competitive way. Uh, is it kind of a culture? Um, for me, yeah. I mean, I like to play or really keep up with games that really have a lot of either they're very competitive or they have a lot of mechanical skill. Um, that's why, actually, that's how I actually ended up meeting uh, Chester and actually getting into EVE is that I uh, was a longtime fan of StarCraft Brood War and that, as many people will know, is very competitive um, RTS game requires a lot of mechanical skill and that's how I kind of got involved um, with uh, the hatchery was a team liquid group that started playing Eve. Hmm. So you guys, did you come in for the tournament or you just came in knowing the guys that play the tournament? Um, I kind of came in not even necessarily for the tournament, but I kind of came in knowing the culture of like wanting to improve yourself, wanting to uh, be competitive, wanting to get better at the game, wanting to improve as a unit and that's something that i kind of do in pretty much every game it is that i play uh, i previously i was a player for uh, world of tanks i was in the professional scene and that i'm no longer involved in that because of uh, my school taking too long but <laughs> it takes longer when you play games right yeah <laughs> but that's interesting so you were um you you actually played it professionally um or there's a scene yeah, there that's professional yeah semi professionally i mean i've won i've won a, some money i mean it's not like league of legends or dota or csgo money but 
I was competitive yeah. and playing in the top league in that scene. It's almost becoming like a tennis player or a, or a golfing a golf player. Uh, the amounts of money that are being given out to e athletes, like it's starting to turn that corner, which is very interesting because um, if you think about it, you have sports that you participate in, and that's one level of activity. And then you have sports that become spectator stuff in a community, and that's one level of audience. But really, when it becomes uh, like ice sports and uh, you build these major league uh, things that all of a sudden you've turned the corner on the industry itself. Like a video game can become uh, an e-sport, which takes it to a whole different level of fandom and possibilities for income. I think that's why I enjoy the Alliance tournament so much is that it's really the kind of the only real avenue um, in Eve to actually do those kind of things. Yeah. Like at some point you stop playing like in, in real life you stop playing the sports you either get older or you get busy or whatever but you don't stop necessarily watching the sports and plugging into that same feeling of victory uh that you know other people achieve for you and that seems to be one of the things that can translate over and i you know i <laughs> i work in um los angeles in our building was um half of my floor on my building was rented out to riot games so you know these guys are right next to me and i would talk to them all the time the producers and their their whole headquarters was actually the next building over and uh, so i would see them in our coffee shop and stuff like that and um came to find out that uh, riot games who makes uh, leg of lead leg of legions league of legends was um kind of financed in a huge like you know just a ton of money was thrown at them from Asia, I think, like 500 million or some ridiculous amount of money. And I'm thinking like, who would invest that much money in a video game? Uh, it occurred to me, they didn't tell me this, but it, it occurred to me that they're trying to make it into a sport. Because at that point, you go from a bunch of players that are, you know, age 16 to 24 to a whole different phenomenon that other people participate in, girlfriends, wives, older guys, you know, don't have time to play anymore. Like it becomes a different thing. And the income potential is so different than a community baseball team. Like that's, you know, major league baseball compared to a community baseball team is totally different income potential. So maybe that is the idea. And so in seeing that in Eve, uh, it, it's kind of interesting because the game itself is such a slow, like a slow boil, right? Uh, investments are made, plans are made, uh, things take time. But the tournament is like that one fragment of um, intense action. Well, and I mean, I, yes and no, yeah. because that's where the Alliance tournament differs from any other esport, because it's still connected to the actual game. So these ships, these prize ships, have actual real value in game. They turn the economy around. They people will spend all year trying. We used to spend all year trying to find uh, the really good faction ammo. Now that's banned, so you can't use it anymore. But still. And people want to source mods for the flagship and stuff like that. So that's a whole alliance or corporation activity that can go on all year. So it's really more connected than many of these other esports are. Yeah. Uh, and yes, I am an old man, so I don't have any connection to esports. Uh, so if it sounds like I'm full of it, maybe I am. But uh, that's my, like I said, I wasn't told that information. That's what I synthesized after talking a long time with them. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right about that. It seems like the, the difference is that... Uh, it, you are, even as tournament players, still a part of the EVE universe. So your money that you win, that's a lot of money, can, I wouldn't say destabilize the economy, but affects the economy. Uh, 
And those ships can actually be seen out in public being used against uh, typical players. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a little bit different. Right, well, that was my contribution. What do you guys, shall we talk about the rules and how they've changed upon me? Yeah. Uh, sure. Um, so there are a lot of rule changes this year, which on their own, some of them might not necessarily have a massive impact, but there are a few that do have a massive impact. And there are a whole bunch of ship changes and rules changes that combine to provide probably the biggest shakeup to the tournament in probably like three or four years. I don't know if the other guys would agree with me. Pause. <laughs> no, it's um, a, was I agree. The big impact a couple of years ago. So it was like probably, what, two probably years since ago. The, probably since the drone ban, yeah. Yeah. But our drones are coming back, and we have things like uh, command burst changes. We have the points values, which are really weird. Like CCP seems to be like, battleships are boring now. We don't want you to fly them anymore. We'll add a ton of points to their value. Yeah, and um, Carneros the talked about it a little bit earlier, just uh, just highlighted it, is um, the energy transfers are, are no longer banned, which is something that gave Tinkers, uh, which is uh, as um, Apothne mentioned, it's basically just a, a core of uh, a remote repping uh, T3 cruiser, which, you know, that's banned now. Um, but yeah, so you can now have, uh, once again, battleships and, and cruisers with energy transfers feeding cap to one another. And you know, having a really durable tank uh, when they're like bunched together. Uh, you also, if you have um, a Ribosun or a Tana in your back pocket, you can still sort of do a, a pseudo tinker. It's it's basically not exactly as strong as a, a tinker of old, but still quite quite strong. And you know, the, there's lots of options like that coming back into the meta, like something that seems uh, that seems to be super hated. They said, well, we hate. But we kind of like it when it's uh, less strong and, you know, there are some battleships involved. And for those not, not aware of it, um, energy transfers uh, break the laws of thermodynamics in EVE Online. So, it, for example, if I send my, my friend capacitor using an energy transfer, he gets 100, but it only costs me 60. So I can create capacitor out of nothing. So... Uh, if he sends me one and I send him one, then we both make capacitor out of nothing. And that's the core concept behind uh, these sort of really tanky doctrines and then what we've called tinkers. So that's coming back in. The drone changes are pretty huge uh, because there was, you know, a really strong drone meta uh, for a few years. And so another the change, the change on the drones is that you can now use tech two damage drones as long as they are mobile. So non sentries. That's correct. But, but what about uh, Tech 2 logistics drones? Did they allow those back in? Uh, yes, they're, they're no, back in. No, no, oh, no. No. Okay, well, then. Only T1 logistics drones. Why did they do that? I mean. I, I think a, a lot of it is uh, they became super, super popular. And um, I, I don't think it was done for a viewer's uh, sake. But it's also kind of hard to see in EVE Online, when, especially when you're casting one of these matches. It seems like nothing's happening for the longest time, and what's happening is on grid. You just have teams shooting, shooting one another's drones and pulling them in and out and trying to get rid of those early because they're so so strong, and they can potentially make matches go on uh, a quite a quite long time without without explosions. And I'm not saying that's the reason they they uh, were banned, but they were just very very powerful. The Tech One variants, um, they're still quite strong, but they're really easy to kill as well. It was most likely a balance decision on the part of 
CCP, when they changed the format from having um, 12 people down to having only 10 going from AT-13 to AT-14, that means that there's two less ships that are shooting at whatever your logistics is repping. So that means that everything obviously tanks a lot more. So forcing only having Tech 1 drones means that you have less reps, so it kind of balances that factor out of it. Yeah, and I think that um, that, it, that that is part of it, but also the CCP in general are trying to move the Alliance tournament towards more aggressive, less defensive focus comps. So when they ban the Tinker before and now are letting it in a more nerfed form, the move away from the super heavy tanking battleships and towards things like hacks and uh, you know ships, ships that don't necessarily have the strongest tank in the history of ever, um, just in an effort to kind of keep the games dynamic and make them less stale to watch and also less stale to play in and possibly increase the variation in what is viable. Because if you're in a meta of who can out-tank each other, then you just pick the tankiest ship a lot of the time. Whereas if it's aggressive, then you can start playing with different things and switching different knobs a lot of the time. And I mean, that really shows as well in the point changes with, like you said, battleships going up, hacks going down, lodges going up as well. So. Yeah, and then uh, moving moving on from that, I mean, we have uh, one of the big new rules, which is like both brilliant and frustrating at the same time, is the uh, ban changes. So I think it's the final week of the tournament. There are going to be three bans per team rather than two, which is really, really, really huge in terms of um, the entire final weekend. A lot of people don't like put much stock in bans. Ah, it's the ships they can't bring. But if you have a team captain that's good at drafting and forcing people into certain comps or forcing people out of certain other comps that you don't want to fly against, you will be in their head and win the game. Like I think this is obviously well before my time, but PL, especially under Seamus, I believe that Seamus was one of those guys who was like he would just outdraft people and win before we were even on the field. Yeah, that's true. Peel has a strong history of doing that sort of thing. Also because we had a lot of intel on the other teams, we kind of knew what to expect beforehand. Well, that whole game has changed, hasn't it? The intel gathering and stuff. But we can go into that later. Go ahead, Bobby. Well, I was just going to say that it also helps allay some concerns that people have that you need to have an 80, uh, a stash of 80 prize ships already to win the game. So it's teams who have already won tournaments and thus have all the 80 ships available that have a huge advantage because obviously, as we know, Atanas are quite good. Rabisus are going to be quite good. Um, ships like the Cambian, the Malleus, Malice, you know, ships that traditionally see a lot of 80 play. If you're a younger team and you don't have access to those, it might feel like, well, what the hell are we going to do? You're at an automatic disadvantage if you don't have hundreds of billions to drop on 80 ships. But with a third ban, it, it kind of means that you can still get your two pans like before and spending a ban on a 80 prize ship is less painful. So having 80 ships is still valuable and still a huge, huge advantage, but three bans rather than two does somewhat mitigate the advantage of having 80 ships. Yep. And continuing on from last year where the rule was first enacted, um, this year it's staying here. The uh, They're limiting the amount of... Um, you know, unique ships or prize ships that you can field in a match. Uh, I think one of the, <laughs> this became an, an issue, I guess, to CCP during Alliance Tournament 13 when the final had, or one of the matches leading up to the finals, had something like eight unique ships fielded between the two teams that were competing. It was like a PL took like a triple Maracha setup and it was just, uh, they, they decided that had gone out of control. So instead of uh, being able to have so many of these ships, you can only take one. And in the feeder rounds, which is we can talk about the format, how it changed a little bit, 
you don't get to bring any. Yeah, and, and to add on that before we do go to the feeder rounds, it's worth mentioning that as each year progresses, there are two more 80 ships in the game, assuming the format stays the same of a cruiser and a frigate each year, which means that full 80 team, 80 ship teams become more and more viable as you have more choice and more roles filled. Um, which, so the problem was only going to get worse and worse and worse uh, and, uh, to the point where they had to enact a rule like this. Right. Um, <clears throat> what's our next point on here? I think the biggest thing is uh, just the overall format of the Alliance tournament itself. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, how, how it's going to be done. It has always been a 64-team thing. Uh, last In previous years, uh, it kind of oscillated between three and four weekends. Uh, this year, they've expanded it to have four weekends of coverage. Um, but they kind of did an interesting little twist on it. Uh, CCP will only broadcast from um, their studio in Reykjavik the last two weekends. For the first two weekends, they're outsourcing it in sorts to EVNT, who did a, a great job last year with the initial weekend. Um, but because of the way CCB did it last year, um, there are two systems being used at the same time. So EVNT could only do one, uh, one system. So you can only see half the matches. And um, the ISD would just do the others. They wouldn't have commentary, but they would have cameras and stuff like that. Um, so this year, there's like CCP is rewarding EVNT for the great job they did last year and the continued job that they do, um, and said, so, you know what, you guys get to get to do the early rounds. And to make things even more interesting, um, instead of having like this crazy bidding war to to get spots, um, we're gonna have 32 teams that are directly invited, and then the other 32 teams will come from a feeder competition. And the feeder competition, it's it's free to enter, or has a very low barrier to enter. I, I'm pretty sure it's free to enter. And it's you on Thunderdome. You need to put in 2,500 plex, but you get it back if you lose. Oh, OK, there you go. So there you go. It's super cheap uh, to, to enter. Um, it takes place on Thunderdome, which is the tournament server. So you don't even have to buy ships uh, to compete. And you know, there you go. So there's 56 people who have signed up for that. Um, and there will be like a, a pre-tournament for that using the the similar rules for the or the exact same rules for the alliance tournament, and of that, 32 teams will be selected and invited to compete in the the main event. So it's kind of opening the doors for more people to get involved uh, without having to spend a lot of money. Like historically, the alliance tournament has been known as something that you have to have a lot of money to compete in. It's like a, an old boys club where all the money wins. At least that's sort of the mentality that people took, whether it was true or not. Um, so now it's kind of breaking the barriers of entry so more people can can enter. And uh, ever since Alliance Tournament 11, I think it is, if you win one match in the Alliance Tournament, you get 10 uh, quasi-unique skins. So they're skins that you can only get from the Alliance Tournament. And so it's, you know, basically if you win one match, you make money in in this whole thing. Well, and, and the, the side benefit, I think that's more eternal than money is reputation of just being good. Uh, I think watching tournament six, I remember looking at PL saying, holy crap, that's who I want to play for. That's like, I want to get to PL. Uh, I have since changed my mind, but <laughs> that was <laughs> like, winning the Alliance tournament is like buying a Ferrari. It's guaranteed gets you laid. Okay. Actually, uh, awesome. as, a, as a counterpoint, actually, actually mm -hmm. gets you um, not laid a lot. Um, one of the things that had trouble with, uh, in Camel and Tuskers, and besides all the videos that were being put out yeah, in Camel by Lord Carlos and 
other members of that group. After we ended up having very deep runs in New Eden Open 2, AT12, and then 13, oops, um, we had a lot of trouble actually getting fights as a result of giving any kind of content because oh. people associated our group with being this amazing, um, really super skilled players. And they're like, no, we're just not going to fight you. So that's very things, interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the things that actually they did is uh, we had everyone leave Corp and join a new um, alt Corp that was like this deliberate uh, RP, like really pubby looking uh, group in name. And we noticed that very much dramatically so. We were able to get much more content, people much more willing to fight us. And we actually ended up a lot, having a lot more fun as a result of doing that. Fun story. Just a, a little bit of a, a side note. That's how Hydra Reloaded got its name. Uh, Garmin uh, decided he wanted to get in on some fights. And Hydra were an alliance that were kind of considered a joke in, in Eve's history. They're just a bunch of uh, kind of care bears and stuff. So Garmin put together the alliance Hydra Reloaded and put a lot of his friends joined that group. And so when people saw it initially, they just thought it was the same Hydra. So like, oh, these guys are awful. Let's fight them. And uh, that's that's sort of the history behind Hydra Reloaded. That's hilarious. Uh, literally, wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, exactly. To, yeah, and one second. That tells you the power of the reputation that comes out of the tournament. Go ahead, Bothy. Yeah, um, so I was just going to say to add on before we move on to the feeder rounds, I really like that it means that everybody who wants to fly gets to fly. Like, I remember speaking to Asher of Goon Swarm a while ago. He's like, I was so frustrated because we never got in through the random draw. Um, so it means everybody who wants to play gets to play. And I think that having Eve NT running year round really helps that. And I think it's going to really help grow the interest in Eve tournaments and also grow the base literacy in EVE tournaments, which in and of itself is going to make the tournaments more fun to watch. Because EVE is a really hard game to get into and to understand. And the Alliance tournament is a really hard part of a really hard game. So to be able to just know what's going on requires quite a lot of knowledge. And I think that the more people that have more time and access to more tournaments spreads that information across the player base and having these feeder tournaments having these extracurricular tournaments from eventy means that more people will be able to appreciate really get involved and just from a viewer standpoint watching going on um but then beyond that we already kind of covered what 80 ships are being used but um i, I do want to ask you guys who do you think like who are your guys top four this year based on the teams who already know are participating who takes top four you know all go hydra tuscus peel volta not necessarily in that order though but those are my picks yeah i don't think you can go wrong with those picks actually this <laughs> i i kind of want to have like a fifth one uh Viger reloaded which is uh nika noiser and, and lucy Luz kind of a uh, group and uh, they're kind of russians well they're not kind of russians they are russians <laughs> they have the most ridiculous fleet comps and theory crafting, but it somehow works for them. Like they just bring the clowniest stuff on paper. It seems awful, but they make it work. So they're really fun to watch, and they're incredibly, incredibly individually talented. What was it? Nully like that too? They would bring some really awkward stuff and almost win with it. Uh, I mean. Yes when and you, no. When you, when you, <laughs> Nully, Nully when they had Hun inside them. Right. 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 Um. Anyway, uh, moderator, you had who were your picks? Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna have to echo what Elise Randolph's saying in no particular order. Tusker's Pandemic Legion, uh, Hydra Reloaded, Vidra, and um, probably uh, Volta as well. 
then on the, kind of on the bubble of the outside, then you've got Exodus and um, and C Dot as well. One of the things I really love about those top picks is maybe maybe Tuskers and Hydra are a little similar, but all of those top teams operate in a very different way their comps are very different stylistically it's not like we have four indistinguishable teams that all run exactly the same comps in exactly the same way and are known for exactly the same things they are very very different teams both on in regular tranquility and in the tournament itself so there's a lot more base of uh, kind of like excitement and story and kind of like picking your horse uh, as well because you know like no i don't think anyone would ever say that hydra reloaded and pandemic legion are functionally the same group right they're they're almost polar opposites in how they operate and what they do in eve and i, and I really like that and you know you have hydra which are known for just the supreme excellence in piloting skill everything down to the millimeter calculator when they're flying and then you have pl who are actually known for actually being quite bad pilots and flying out of the arena all the time <laughs> if they're members of habit um and then but also for PL known for just having that depth of theory crafting. So just having a ton of comps to be able to pull out of their pocket at the last minute. Oh, here's a new mechanic that we've abused to all hell and nobody else knew how to do it. So we automatically win this match. And then also the spy game as well. PL historically is known for that as well. I really like how the top teams are so very different and it adds a lot of flavor to the tournament. Uh, the kind of the final thing we should probably touch on the AT is that CCP have clarified the rules on collusion and they've made them a lot more hardcore than they used to be in wording if not in intent to the point where it is no shared theory crafting no shared basically anything at all you're allowed to scrim against each other which in itself is kind of sharing theory and crafty in the way that uh, last year pretty much all the top teams apart from pandemic legion practiced with each other and when I think it, I want to say it was Exodus that came up with the Bal MBC comp that we saw, it meant that those other top teams knew about it as well, and everybody kind of figured out. But Pandemic Legion completely missed it, so we had to spend like weeks two and three of the tournament going, "Oh my God, what is this comp? Why does it beat everything we have?" Um, so the kind of that in itself is shared theory crafting. But I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on the new wording of the collusion rules and what it implies. Obviously, it harkens back to Hydramel, but we we won't go too far into that. I mean, is it? Is, would the collusion rules rule out like PL slipping the Bastion one tournament ship to work with? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it, and, it, and it used to be standard practice. Say you nice had um, like uh, say you had PL and Hydra going up the opposite sides of the bracket. It was common practice to say say Hydra doesn't want to face PL because you know they're each other's nemesis. They knocked each other out of the tournament the whole time, all the time. So Hydra goes to Roke Capel who were a perfectly good team, but not quite on that level, say, hey, this is what PL is probably going to bring in your match. Here's a comp that we thought of that would absolutely beat them, and they're not expecting you to bring it. You guys take them out. And Rota, like, will take a win versus PL, and Hydra out of it would get, well, let's fight Rote instead of Pandemic Legion, because Rote are the least, less strong team. So there was all kinds of that going on, kind of like in the back channels of like uh, helping other teams out who are against them, which is very interesting, a lot of fun in many ways, but I think CCP are trying to make it cleaner to deal to help deal with all the problems that we've had with the uh, more malignant collusion that goes out, outside the uh, fair gamesmanship. So um, basically what, what uh, another thing that it eliminates is that uh, actually I'm pretty sure people can still loan out AT ships to other teams, but as long as they, there isn't some sort of expectation that uh, that they would then share their prizes or share some information without that. 
But one of the big things is there, there was a time where two teams would scrim against one another, and they'd practice against one another, and they'd say, you know what, two minds are better than one. So let's just share everything, and we'll have a gentleman's agreement before we go into the tournament. No matter what happens, we'll split the prizes 50-50. Um, so if you finish first and I finish 32nd, we each get 25 cruisers. If you finish first and I finish second, uh, which is kind of the, the end goal of that, is then, then we each split um, the, the lion's share of the prizes together. And that sort of made for a really unfun dynamic uh, because you had two teams that would fly the same, uh, do exactly the same thing, and you know they didn't really care if they lost so much as long as their partner was doing well, and it sort of loaded the, the bracket up as well. So if, you, if your team was in a really difficult section of the bracket, but your, you know, your gentleman's handshake counterparts were in an easy bracket, you were like, oh, phew, at least we're going to get some prizes out of this. This is the best. And that's the, the sort of collusion that we'd seen happen before uh, where teams didn't get punished doing this because it wasn't explicitly against the rules. And then we did see teams get punished for kind of taking this to the next level. Uh, I mean, EVE Online players are habitual line steppers. Or you, you draw a line in the stand, we'll put our foot as close to the line as possible without going over. Then, you know, maybe put our foot over just to see what happened. Um, so this kind of marks a very, very drastic line in the stand and tells you if you cross this line, you will be eliminated from the Alliance tournament and your gentleman handshake team will also be eliminated. So just play for yourself. And if there's any funny business, you're done so. Yeah, that's basically, it was basically like one larger team getting two shots at winning the tournament. And that's just not cool, even from a statistic sense. Even if you are the best team, that's still quite unfair. Um, but yeah, that's not good. I, I completely lost my train of thought, sorry. What was your question that you asked, uh, you posed to everyone? Uh, their thoughts on the new wording of the collusion rules. I remember what it, it was basically CCP now have stated their opinion and the rules on it, which means that when it does come to if bad things happen, CCP can ban people as much as they like and go, look, we laid out the rules, you know, two or three months ago. We were very, very clear that we even smell this shit. You're out. So it gives them a lot more leeway to kind of take more aggressive action against this stuff. And people go, hey, whoa, we thought this was okay. We thought this was part of the shady shenanigans of the AT. Whereas now it's very clear, no, none of it. You're going to get banned. You're going to be out the tournament forever, gone, by. Lucas, did you have something? Yeah, I mean, this also ties into what I said earlier about the Lions tournament uh, being a part of the large universe. When you have a game like Dota or CSGO or whatever, then the playing field is leveled. Everyone is playing the same heroes. Everyone has the same items. Everyone has the same stuff available to them. And you, I mean, sure, you can collude by sort of throwing a match or something, but you're not going to have this free sharing of resources and intel like you do in uh, in the Alliance tournament. And with explicitly stating that no more sharing logistics and resources and splitting prices, that's sort of just CCP putting the foot down, I guess. Your moderator. Oh, yeah. This is going to be the first major tournament that's going to occur after the changes to the EULA not, no longer allowing betting. And I'm very interested to see what that does uh, with regard to the viewership. Uh, personally, it means that I make about uh, 50 or some odd bill less every AT season. But mm -hmm. what's everyone's take on uh, EVE bet no longer being a thing, people not betting on matches and what that's going to do for viewership? 
It was never a big draw for me personally. Like I made like I think like ten bill the first weekend last year, um, just because I knew who the t good teams were going to be before other people kind of figured it out. Uh, but like I, I think it will drop the viewership because that was a big thing for some people. Some people love to have a bit of money on it and kind of get that extra excitement. But I think the for the for the tourney people, for the people who like really love the playing and the nerding and the theory crafting, it won't affect them much. So I guess it will affect the viewership, but it probably won't affect the number of people that are interested in participating. Uh, I, uh, no betting on the AT is is so sad. You know, like it's one of those things that uh, is, is now going to be part of a bygone era. And it was so fun to do. Like uh, alliances would get involved, whether or not their team was playing. They would, you know, sit around on Teamspeak or in a, a separate Jabber channel or on Mumble, and just like talk to one another. Say, "Oh, this this guy's gonna do the betting. This guy's gonna do so and so." Um, I think I think it's it's super sad to have uh to have that betting aspect gone. I know there are some groups out there who have like in-house sort of betting type things which as far as I know is allowed to happen uh, for, for uh, in-game events. But man, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel really different without being able to bet on it for a lot of people because that was one of the main draws for the, the people who didn't really care about watching the mechanics or anything uh, of the game or who weren't interested in you know, the minutia of picking a certain ship instead of another one. I guess it kind of made it more accessible and it kind of made it so when you rooted for a team... Uh, you sort of felt really attached to them, you know? Uh, whenever oh, yeah. I have anything on the line, I always... Like, this is the main reason I play fantasy football, right? Uh, like, yeah. When I play fantasy football, I'm so invested in every team where I have a player on my team um, and because I just got have something riding on it. Even if it's not... Even if I don't care if I win ISK, it's sort of the bragging rights of saying, I bet on this and I was right. Go ahead, Carneros. It's a little bit like removing fantasy football. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess... It, it, uh, I think all that stuff still happens without the gambling. What the gambling might have done is is forced you to look at the teams a little closer before they performed to actually try to make money. So you try to look for those gems of teams, and that does get you involved in like what teams are, you know, flying what and who's good and who's not, and it does kind of raise your awareness if you're actually trying to make money on it. Uh, one of the nice things about the Alliance tournament, and I. We'll say this in my house very quietly so my wife doesn't hear, but I actually went to work one weekend to watch the tournament uh, just so I could watch it. And uh, I remember sitting there cheering uh, for my team. It's a really strong compulsion to like cheer your guys on uh, if you like your alliance. Yeah, um, once, you get, once you get that bite, you're sort of addicted to it in, in a bad way. I remember Alliance Tournament 11. I, I was like super involved in the PLAT team. I was so excited to watch the run. And I had at my cousin's wedding, like my cousin, like we're the same age and we basically grew up as siblings. Um, I went to his wedding and I was a groomsman. And that was the, the same time that um, PL were playing in the finals. So I remember like having my phone in my pocket with Twitch playing and a little earbud going in that I'd you know pretend to scratch my ear a little bit uh, just to sort of hear what was going on. And I'd be like, oh, I, I, something, I ate something off at the, at the, at the reception. I have to go to the bathroom, excuse myself. And, and <laughs> I'd just be huddled in like the corner in a tuxedo, just staring at my screen, trying to see if PL won their match or not or how it was going. And I, I felt like a junkie. I felt like a super degenerate. <laughs> just, I had my cousin's huge wedding, and I was just sitting in the corner. Oh, funny. Carneros? Yeah, one of, one of my favorite parts is uh, 
Alliance tournament viewing parties. I, I host one every year in San Diego, usually the last two weekends even. And I'll I'll make a deal with a nearby bar to open up at seven or eight in the morning because of the time zone differences. And we'll all go in there and, you know, have croissant and mimosas and beer and coffee and watch the thing. It's a great, it's great fun. Oh, that sounds cool. And there'll be a bunch of other people. They'll have whole lists of Alliance tournament parties out there. Yeah, and I have you, last you would year. enjoy it. Yeah, I may check that out. Uh, well, if I can get away. Um, yeah, but that uh, the the gambling aspect to bring it back to that was uh, something that we thought like uh, we discussed it the other night, and it was kind of yeah. Why doesn't CCP do it themselves just for the tournament? Like that seems like it would fit into the atmosphere. But like you had to be docked in your station to actually place bids and stuff like that. I thought that would be interesting. It's it sounds like it would be a lot of dev time. Like so, like whenever CCP do a change, it's okay. How much dev time would it take? How much benefit yeah. does it give us? And yes, when exactly. it comes to the AT, CCP do wonderfully support the AT. Like they, there's a ton of people there who really care about it, put a lot of time and effort in, and financially it's well supported as well. But do we do that, or do we get the structure changes three months delayed? Like it's that kind of trade-off. Yeah, it was a it was a fantasy to throw that out there and stuff. But it seems like that, like if you wanted to, uh have gambling that would be the scenario where it would fit into the universe instead of just some you know crazy crackerjack uh, slot machine kind of stuff that goes on or did go on right so uh let's wrap up uh pretty quick we have anything else on the alliance tournament you guys wanted to cover um i was gonna do a little bit in the doctrine watch but i think that's after player news right yeah we'll uh we'll, we'll try to we might go over a little bit today which is fine because there's a lot of information here um, I wanted to go into player news next, and uh, let's have a look at what's going on out there. Nice. Uh, I, I do know that the second blood uh, raider Satio was reinforced by this time not a huge fleet, but just four super caps, I believe, three or four. And um, funny enough, this time a lot of people may be looking at the example of what happened before, and let's talk about what happened before. Um, Goonswarm destroyed the Satio. It dropped its wreckage. Inside the wreckage was very valuable loot. And it was um, taken by somebody that wasn't a part of the people who killed it. It was taken by test. Although those guys were uh, targeted and killed before they could escape with it, destroying it for everybody. And so this time uh, it gets reinforced and a lot of people show up to third party the wreckage it looked like. Uh, so they didn't uh, bother fighting it. They just kind of sat back uh, and I believe it was uh, Russians uh, uh, just let it kind of uh, expire. So I thought that was interesting. Um, anything else on that? If not, uh, I think it's a, just a hilarious mechanic. The whole, it's, it's kind the of whole Blood Raider shipyard thing. Like, first you have a bunch of dudes at Punishers doing it. Then you have like four guys doing it in supers and I guess microwing their thing. And then the big fear is that someone's just going to cherry pick the loot before you. That's like the so big good. thing. Yeah. I was saying there's two news stories here. The first one to kill the Satio, that happened. The next one is the first person to steal the loot from somebody else is going to be a big story. The other, uh, so we'll move on because there's a bunch of stuff here and we're out of time. But Methodical Alliance, which was a pretty stable alliance uh, with ties to darkness um, or guardians of the galaxy. Uh, has shuttered and, so and they, they seem to have some emotional ties to your alliance too nc nc dot yes the a lot, a lot of the guys that can't um 
class of wrong way to put it, but basically we refer them to methodical to like kind of get acclimated to null sec. Uh, and that's for a lot of veterans that come back to the game that want to jump back in and, and see. Uh, sometimes they get deferred over to, or did, to methodical where they could kind of acclimate to the environment and then reapply later and stuff. So yeah, and there's definitely a lot of friendships between uh, a Dice Corporation and methodical. Somewhat, I, I don't know how deep it goes. I went to look at what happened to most of the methodical corpse and a few of them, like one, one went to darkness, one went to Mordu's angels, one went to blades of grass, one went uh, to a renter alliance, rate my ticks. Uh, hmm. But most of them reformed as a new alliance called blue sun interstellar technologies. Oh, interesting. So they did kind of split up and go in different directions. Yeah. Well, Judging best to all of them. Killboard, they're mostly in Calval Expanse. Oh, yeah, that's uh, drone regions, I believe. Yeah. Well, so uh, goodbye to Methodical. And um, next on to some combat, uh, NC is uh, fighting the Imperium inside of Gehi, which is uh, low security. Um, it's actually not Iridia. It is Kenya, isn't it? But anyway, it's really close to Delve uh, in those areas. Or sorry, it's close to Catch, which is where a lot of action is happening these days between, uh, wow, well, just all the alliances in the southern area uh, before I list them all and forget people. So there was a couple of huge battles last night. Looks like there's a lot of activity uh, happening and um, fleets are getting bigger and bigger because things are kind of heating up. Um, pure blind, there seems to be some skirmishes that look like some kind of... Uh, not a purge necessarily, but uh, they're trying to move some people out of there. Uh, anybody know about the pure blind skirmishes that are going on? All right. I, I don't have the names of the people involved right now, uh, so I'll have to like read up on it. Vale seems to be attacked by Test of all people. So their Vale's kind of filled with kind of renters for NC dot, and there seems to be a lot of activity up there as well. Um, yeah. The, um, so there's a like a little so Test's main. Uh, like a uh, campaign has been to, to deploy to stain to get rid of uh, the stain Russians that live in there because they're always a nuisance to, to test, especially living in that area. But a small little group decided to deploy to Vale to start harassing the NC dot uh, sort of renter alliance there to see if they can affect like their money, uh, the income just by being in there with cloakies and, and stuff like that. And so a lot of the you know, hubbub is that that's what caused NC to deploy down south. It's because they're like, oh, well, you, you want to mess with our house. We're going to mess with your house. We'll just deploy the house down towards Gehi to sort of get more involved in that theater. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that does kind of suit NC's personality. I've seen that a few times where they kind of say something to a smaller – they kind of threaten alliances, uh, you know, don't, don't do that or you're going to pay for it. And NC is pretty good about – following through on their punishment so they will go down there and stuff whether they're successful or not i don't know it remains to be seen but uh they do kind of move to settle some scores um yeah so that's uh what's going on up there and uh ghost training do you have some information on that apothe so ghost training was a thing whereby you could have a unsubbed account, but it would still accrue skill points. And this means that for free, you could functionally train characters, which is basically playing the game for free. CCP released a dev blog. Um, I think it was last night where they said that, look, we know that you like free skill points and free subscriptions if you don't log in, but legit, we're a company providing a service. We'd like it if you 
pay for the service we provide, so we're disabling that now. Wait, I'm sorry, they're disabling... Go, the, the ability to ghost train, because it's so, functionally a bug that lets you get skill points whilst unsubscribed from the game. So it's like you're training on a subscribed account, just not logging in. So obviously that means that skill point farmers could basically make ISK on unsubscribes accounts, like a fair amount of ISK. And mm -hmm. the more people knew about it, the more people did it and the more money was made and CCP were like, hey, a ton of people are doing this thing. This is a massive problem. We need to stop it. Yeah, so some backstory on that. They knew about it uh, since FanFest. They were trying to figure out how to f fix it or maybe waiting for the right time. I don't know. The news didn't really get out into the public, and that's kind of nice to see that courtesy to CCP not to like blow this out into news and let everybody do it. But it finally did make it to Reddit. Reddit put it out there, and all of a sudden, Plex sales went sky high. It was assumed that uh, part of the pressure to push those prices high is the demand that was created by people who wanted to get in on this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, that was only a few days ago, so that's been nerfed, uh, or actually that's been fixed. So uh, the people who are getting in late are getting the short end of the stick, but there were people who um, managed to get a ton of skill points um, that they shouldn't have gotten, and they've managed to get those skill points and convert those by selling them through injectors to a lot of money. It, it is assumed nobody really talks about that out loud, but that's what that whole uh, controversy was. It's nice to see that that is fixed. So, um, I just want to get in on yeah, that because please. the dev blog you're showing right now is from 2008, and so I don't know if I've actually fixed the issue with alpha accounts training Omega skills yet. So, so I did know that it the problem existed way back then. Um, yeah, but that was a different I, issue because that was yeah. when your account subscription lapsed. That thing now is that when your subscription laps, you just go into alpha status. So you still train alpha skills, but the problem was that they didn't stop uh, Omega skills from training. And that was how the free skill farming came in. So, so I don't think anything is actually been fixed. people saying that it hasn't been fixed. Yeah, oh, we, we, we may have there. been bruised. Yeah, the, oh. I, th I thought maybe it came across this morning or something and I didn't see it, but... Yeah, I was looking for dev blogs frantically. Couldn't find anything. Yeah, same. As far as I know, it, it's still... A mechanic that potentially exists like I have accounts several accounts that that weren't sub so it's like when I first heard about this I was like oh let me log in and see if this worked it didn't work for any of my characters but I assume there's a way to get it to work because I've seen characters uh, like I know there's one uh, skill point farm one guy has with like 180 characters and it just kept growing growing and growing so I assume it still works as a mechanic um, there is some hubbub that maybe it doesn't work as a mechanic and it just uh, some market manipulator is trying to say, hey, this is what works so we can sell Plex better <laughs> or wow. something like that. With Eve, you never really know how it's going to be. It could be a bug or it could just be some uh, budding entrepreneur trying to manipulate the market by by seeding false information about it. It's, uh, it's a good point to make. So maybe uh, there still is room to get in on it. Maybe that door is closed and it's just speculation. It's all very mysterious. <laughs> but let's assume it's not fixed. So we're not making uh, any announcement because we don't have that confirmed confirmed. Um, but you're right. There was two sessions of this. It, was, it, it did go back to 2008. There was a certain bug of that either got fixed or didn't become a problem at a certain point. Then when they said all accounts are free, uh, and the training is constantly ticking, that uh, that problem came back in a different mutation. Uh, and that's the one we're talking about today. So it's like if it was a virus, it had kind of come up in one at one point, went away, and it's come up in a mutated form uh, and is plaguing us uh, now, if you consider that a, a plague. 
Um, so APIs are revealing, so uh, Rivra reported in the INN news that uh, APIs are revealing production information so they can tell like uh, how much building is going on. And so you can check out that article for more information on that. Um, H, or sorry, Eve Survival, and that was, Eve Survival is a website that was dedicated to missioners and it had descriptions of missions, what you could optimize your chances of defeating it uh, with, and um, you know, what, what you could expect. Um, that site went down apparently, and is still down at, uh, that was Eve, dot, sorry, evetaxsurvival.org. Uh, it looks like it's uh, some kind of a server ownership issue. And uh, uh, if you read what's up there now, somebody got really mad that uh, somebody donated to the cause and then uh, wanted a refund right after that. And the person got really mad and took it uh, the wrong way and basically said, fine, if you guys don't want to donate, then I'll just shut this off. And so it looks like it's getting worked out uh, as people, you know, people built these tools five, six, seven years ago, and they still have them up and they don't play the game anymore. So it's uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting that uh, that phenomenon people still kind of share that old knowledge they have, and that people are still willing to pay for it. There were a lot of people on Reddit who were immediately willing to uh, either try to source that or to try to help uh, host that elsewhere. So that was really nice to see that the community was uh, so receptive to helping or rehosting that material. Yeah. And the last uh, point we want to make is uh, tomorrow, watch the 07 show. It airs at, uh, uh, what is that, 20 hundred uh, UTC time. So check that out tomorrow. And yeah, we have one last section we want to get to, and this is called the Doctrine Watch. And Apothne usually does this by himself, but we may actually, since we have such good theory crafters here, talk to all these guys. Apothne? Yeah, so the Doctrine Watch this week is of you guys, what is your favorite AT archetype? So an example would be the Tinker or the Bal MBC comp last year. So not a specific set of ships. What is your favorite archetype? Like, uh, or even Min Matar Rush. Um, uh, I will go first and be really awkward because it's not a comp that's ever been fielded. But last year I designed a team around logistics frigates and golems, which I thought was really cool. And PL actually tested it and it, won some games against real against real comps from again from like pandemic legion and hydra theory crafting chains i felt so happy with myself that that is now my favorite comp for all time because it was the first comp i made that actually almost worked uh, i'll echo those sentiments uh obviously i didn't like come up with the idea of the comp but i really like um sort of an e-war control team uh, or like a, a rush control team, like a little hybrid of those two. I think those are really fascinating to to watch the positioning of the pilots and the decision making that's gone on through those things. Uh, that's that's definitely my favorite is the those control kind of slow and methodical uh, type teams. Um, I have to say I like the all-out DPS teams, especially the ones involving bombers, because there's nothing more satisfying than getting a bomb runoff in the first ten seconds of the match and obliterating a tanker. Yeah, I, I agree. Watching the the first volley of bombs go off, and, oh, where are they going to hit? That's that's a lot of fun. And then just you know, anytime there's a an AT prize ship or a really rare ship of some sort, it is like, oh wow, you know, that's that's fun to watch as a watcher. Uh, moderator, did you have one? Jordan? Yeah, for, yeah, for sure. Um, probably my favorite comp that we've ever fielded was a Scorpion Navy issue. Pair of widows and like an Atana. 
a mobile tinker setup. Um, something that kind of was brought out in AT12 and really shocked people with how effective it was and was even viable later in AT13. Yeah. I like anything with uh, Schleppners in it because um, they just seem to put out so much DPS and that you can just hear the guns going when they zoom in and it's uh, it's exhilarating. Uh, and uh, anything that has, yeah, I'm, I'm with Lucas on that, uh, DPS and the the dramatics of bombing runs and that kind of stuff. It's uh, plus the matches get over sooner, so you're not sitting there waiting for that one guy to die, that one last guy. Um, let me ask another question before we go. Uh, do you guys have favorite moments of past tournaments? Yeah, I, I, you actually played one of my favorite matches of all time, which was Alliance Tournament Seven, Pandemic Legion versus Cry Havoc. It's when we launched a bunch of bombs and caught the Cry Havoc team completely off guard. And they just had no idea how to, to react to that. They, they were just on the back foot for the entire match, trying to recover. And it was so cool. And it was like a, one of those firsts for me because I was, I was flying in that team as a rook. And my hands were shaking so bad that I could barely like, get my jams off. I screwed up so many things, but I didn't want to let anyone know. It was just such an exhilarating uh, feeling. And it was so cool to be part of that. Mine is um, the AT11 finals. Um... That, I was in the PL OG comms, which is where we hang out and play other games, watching the tournament with the other PL guys. And I think the SoundCloud recording of us all watching has gone around and been overlaid over the footage. And that was kind of the moment where I fell in love with the tournament. And it was kind of like, because of that, I looked into it so much for the next 12 months and ended up commentating 8012 from Iceland, having kind of fallen in love with it at the very end of AT11. I mean, there's lots of little good moments, especially when you look at, and I'm not going to use a Chester term here, but the lower parts of the bracket, where you see some really heroic efforts by some people. And there was especially that one, I think you'll remember, with I think it was a, uh, was it a night talk, or maybe it was uh, something else that was sig tanking and abandoned at close range. That was really fun to watch. And everyone was just screaming at the screens to keep transversal, keep transversal. <laughs> you must that's funny you must see the uh like a certain level of details that most people don't see uh you know uh so the stuff that you're cheering must be totally different than the uh stuff that if other you're, people are cheering. if you're very lucky the commentators pick up on the most pertinent stuff and tell you to be excited about it too but sometimes we fail that's one thing to say about tinkers to be honest because and, and i think you all saw this match as well which did was out of his mind where blast x always almost died in his tinker it was against uh exodus i think in the at11 semifinals yeah yeah that was actually my probably my most favorite match because not my most favorite match but a very memorable match i was on the other side of that pandemic legion exodus match i was the exodus team captain uh, that year, and we ended up throwing ended up throwing the match because one of the players didn't listen to me. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, that was that was game um, three of a uh, the lower bracket final. Whoever won that match got second place and got fifty uh, eighty ships guaranteed. The loser uh, went and got nothing. So we ended up walking home with nothing because someone just uh, didn't listen to me. And Peel got second place off that, and then they got first in an amazing. Best of five series against Hydro Reloaded. And in that match, Name it looked from the outside like nothing was happening, but our comms were frantic. We were dropping cap boosters left, right, and center and trying to pick them up. We were shooting yeah. drones. We were everything to sort of reduce the damage coming in on the Tengu. And we were shooting we were shooting those jet cans or trying to loot them ourselves as soon as they come up or shooting your drones to try to get mitigate damage. Yeah. 
that's uh that's that's pretty severe good for you you're like carried through on your punishment uh it takes a lot of uh well strength um my favorite is the pl's hero um oh i just had it it was the hero what's that hack um the one that had the extra large or capital size shield booster on oh it was the vulture in the last match of the finals yeah was oh, it yeah. Would uncle kite the range? Yeah. Yeah, like it, it, it almost you know lost all of its shield, and in one second it all came back. Uh, that was amazing. If I can give a special mention to Dankle's ability to pull a match out of his ass, was the PLNC match of last year that half of Eve thought PL had paid NC off to lose, and the other half of Eve thought NC had paid PL off to lose, and two members of our alliance who shall remain nameless but both i believe were some from a well-known corporation in the alliance boundary violated off of a bait drake which is why their ticker is now hashtag break on comms and has been since <laughs> um and then so we're down on points and then like dankle manages to barely kill a caracal with like five seconds left in the match to win the seer the to win the game having boundary violated two slatineers it was so close i uh, a friend of mine who was on the team was at work and i was live texting him like the play-by-play because -play, he couldn't watch because he's a very serious job and like he had to at work he was in a meeting or something said he had to step outside for a few minutes because he was physically shaking after seeing two of our slatineers basically throw the match away when he thought we were going to lose <laughs> spoke to Casper the other day. He got a black mark on the wall from where, from where he broke his headset. Yeah, like it was ripped <laughs> like a headset, a keyboard, Doom Chinchillas, fucking hands or something. No, oh, it gets competitive, doesn't it? All right. Well, uh, if there's nothing else, let's uh, close out the show. I want to um, thank Apotney for helping a lot um, with the Alliance tournament questions and uh, Carneros for coming around. Elise, thank you for showing up. Lucas, uh, pleasure to meet you, and thanks for coming, as well as uh, Moderator. And one last thing, Moderator, I didn't know you were on Exodus. I have a soft spot for Exodus. I don't know if it's the name or something, but I was always cheering for you guys, and I was never a part of Exodus. CCP Rise's favorite team. Yeah, I, I just, I like them. I don't know why, uh, but uh, I did. I always cheer for them. There's a few teams that I don't belong to that I always cheer for, and Exodus was uh, definitely one of them. All right. So thanks very much, everyone, for coming around. I want to give out some credits. McLeod is the producer of this show. It's run live on INN, but uh, it's put into a podcast form that we put out um, separately. And I want to thank everybody for watching. And if you want to support the podcast, it is uh, Patreon slash Matural. And uh, supports all your content providers, not only us, but everybody. And subscribe and give follows and uh, send them an email every once in a while, letting them know you appreciate what they do. It helps keep the stuff going. It really does. And um, last pitch is that if you guys want to uh, join INN, uh, we need writers and artists and programmers too, and even administrative people. We have a huge team of over 80 active people. It's really fun. It's like its own alliance, really. Um, but uh, yeah, think about that. And I will actually go ahead and let uh, any of you guys have um, a second to do shout outs or you know plugs or whatever you want starting with apothe going on down shout out to this year's plat team i'm super looking forward to spending the next three months of my life with you guys in a small room on the internet
punching each other in the face about fittings. Nice. Shout out to Keisha and Cartress and the uh, Bastion AT team. Go guys. Elise? I guess I'll give a shout out to uh, to Dan Cool and Lucas for uh, for the work that they're about to embark on in terms of uh, the Alliance tournament since it's kind of the theme for uh, for these shout outs. Uh, it's a really oftentimes a thankless job and so I guess I give them the, their, their due credit. It is an, an like just a crazy amount of work that they do every year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on that note, might as well say a shout out to all my friends and family. I'll see you again in September, I guess. <laughs> and also to all the guys in Namamaki Police. We'll be around, don't worry. We'll see you in the summer. Oh, you still have your ship, right? Oh, it wasn't mine. Yeah, I didn't think so. Good. And last, uh, moderator? Yeah, shout out to the other members of the Tech 3 focus group. And uh, here's hoping I get invited back to Cast Alliance Minute 15. Cool. Uh, my little shout outs are to uh, Gauda1776. Thanks for subscribing for the fourth month in a row. Thank you very much. And thanks for the follows to uh, Thority Undead and uh, Gabriel Lawless. And that is all for Talking in Stations this week.